Zone 3 Podcast. I am Robert. Yes, and I am Reggie. And wow, <laughs> we are joined today by an all-around nice guy. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Manny Canal, Dr. Emmanuel Canal. Yes. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Canal. It's my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's an honor. Trust me. It's an awesome. <laughs> uh, I was telling everybody today. Well, introduce yourself for those living under a rock. Uh, my name is Manny Canal. I'm at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and have been there for a long time, <laughs> 40 years now. And um, I do a lot of MRI. I do a lot of work in neuroradiology, emergency neuroradiology. And um, we, do, um, we do a lot of work on MR safety. Nice. Well, you've got a passion in the industry and it shows. And you've got a, a name that's recognizable because of it. So... Uh, that's the reason why we invited you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, All right. you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, and so he just flew in from Pittsburgh. And uh, today's episode topic is FDA uh, on-label, off-label scanning. And this is like a subject that I imagine you're no stranger to. Uh, you're actually the one that chose to, the the, choose this as the topic today. Um, Oh, if you would just kind of talk about the reason for today's topic is your choice. Sure. The um, I guess I got a quick question to kind of open you up. Absolutely. When was the first time that you scanned off-label? Or was it always off-label and then you scanned on-label? I started out in surgery, then I went to medicine, then I went to, to radiology. And um, off-label is an integral part of what we've done from med school. It's, it's, there's no such thing as one was the first time. It's, we're always off label. <laughs> we're, we're always right. off. If you're not doing things off label, something's wrong. Quite literally, something's wrong. And that's part of what I want to get across because I don't think people realize that. And the reason I actually brought this up is you guys know I do a lot of teaching about MR safety and, yeah. and, and it's a passion of mine to try to do things safely. But People have the impression that the reason I give courses on MR safety is because I want them to understand, obviously, what the, the issues are. But also, then, if they have to cancel somebody, they know why they have to cancel. And it's true. But that's not the real reason. Right. The, the bigger reason is because we cancel a lot of people that don't need to be canceled. And if you really do understand what's going on, then it's actually easier to say yes a really wise man once said something to me that just left such an impression. He says, if you're in, if you're in a room and it's all military, but nobody's wearing a uniform, how do you know who's the highest ranking officer there? Oh, right. How do you know who's the highest ranking officer if nobody's wearing We're uniforms? Just out the biggest or furthest? Nah. Well, he isn't. That's right. ego. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're right. You don't got to flex if you are the man. That's true. It's the one who says yes. Uh-huh. The person who has the authority is the only one who's able to say yes without having to worry about it. Right. Everybody else says no. And that's why I keep saying it's easy to say no, but it, it takes knowledge and understanding and a willingness to apply them to say yes. Right. So I think that what's ended up happening in radiology is that there's, there's a lot of no. And a lot of no's that really don't have to be. There are times that we really can safely scan a patient, but we need to, to understand that we can scan them safely. And what we can and can't do and how to go about mitigating the risks. So one of the things that we've run up against, mm -hmm. one of the problems was that even if people understand that they can do it safely, but the label doesn't let me, and that's an issue. 
the product label, the instructions for use, the manual, the, 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 the prescription description, whatever you want to call right. it. <laughs> people think that this is the, the labeling of this drug, the labeling of this device right. precludes my being able to use it the way I would like to. I can only use it this way. And so there, what, what is that? What is that about? What is the product label, the package insert, the instructions for use? What is it meant to teach us or what is it meant to do? Who is it meant for? How do we use that? Yeah. Especially if that's holding us back. Should it hold us back or is it appropriate to hold us back? Or mm. no, we should ignore it entirely or something in between. I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion in that. And that's what I was hoping we could address today. Oh, yeah, for well, sure. It's, <clears throat> it's funny you said he left an impression on you because actually I, I remember something you said when we met in Pittsburgh last year that kind of resonated with me, pun intended. Uh, you said basically like we're always concerned about like the con like the safety aspect of scanning the patient, but we never really consider, you know, how detrimental it is to not scan that patient as right. far as the progression of their treatment, um, diagnosing what's going on and <clears throat> creating a therapy plan, I guess. So that kind of like really left an impression with me. I've never really thought of it from that angle. Right. It, it helps coming from a, a pure clinical background because... We feel, in a sense, like heroes. Oh, we canceled the study. We just saved this patient from a fate worse than death. And who knows that they could have had had they gone in or whatever. Right. But I think what we don't necessarily see is that, well, now they may be going to biopsy where they didn't have to before. Or now they may be going to a uh, conventional angiogram, whereas before I could have done it with a, a, an MR angiogram or something less invasive. So we're not evil. Quite the opposite. We are literally motivated to help the patient. But... We may, be, we may be making a decision that results in the patient being exposed to more risk right. inadvertently, although we don't see that. We just see that we're heroes because we cancel the study and save them from something that could have been a real safety issue, didn't we? After all, right. this is what I was afraid of. Now that's not going to happen. Yeah, but, but now she's gone to the OR or now she's had a, an, an, uh, a myelogram or, or something that may be, uh, it's not a big risk, right. but the risk may be greater than it necessarily didn't necessarily have to be is what I, is what I'm well, concerned about one of the things that always made me hesitant to always go by the guidelines is because when you got to go to court they're going to ask you why you did this right they're going to ask okay so why did you make the decision to scan this patient in a certain way or whatever you did right mm -hmm. and if I can't say oh well I just went off the guidelines then what am I going to say right like that's one of my things what so. a fascinating word you use <laughs> Guidelines. guidelines. <laughs> We're going to talk about oh, guidelines. <laughs> what are guidelines and who issues right. guidelines and are these guidelines and what are we supposed to do right. with what it says in the instructions for use? Like and then what are we not supposed to do? <laughs> So that's that's part of what we're going to address directly. And I, I love the fact that you used the word that you did, a very point, appropriate word, guidelines. I and told them to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one thing that we did forget to as far as, I think if you don't mind, let's first have you define what an on-label, off-label sure. is. Right. Sure. So what I'm going to discuss, we'll talk about devices, implants, things of that nature, but it applies to pharmaceuticals as well. It applies to drugs or devices. And, mm -hmm. and you'll see it's all based on the FDA and what their job is and, 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 and who are they speaking with. They're going to govern 
drugs and, and, and pharmaceuticals as well as devices. Actually, food as well, but that's not for, for today. So what does on-label mean and what does off-label mean? Um, if you buy a drug, prescription drug shows up, or even non-prescription, if you buy a drug and you open it up and it has this whole, we call it a, a, a package insert. If it's a device, it may be instructions for use. What it actually is referred to as labeling. Labeling simply means anything that the manufacturer has accompanying this device or this drug, anything. Mm. It's called labeling. And so, for example, in magnetic resonance, let's just jump right into the deep end of the pool. We <laughs> right. have a patient that has, they're six foot four, they have a, um, they're diabetic, and they have a deep brain stimulator. The deep brain stimulator has a label, and it says it can be used on an MR scanner up to 1.5 Tesla and, um, 720 gauss per centimeter right. and normal operating mode up to 0.4 i'm making this up completely 0.4 watts <laughs> right. per kilogram 15 continuous minutes per series and 200 tesla per meter per second is the maximum gradient that they wanted to use normal operating mode mm -hmm. i just threw out a lot of terms i just threw out a lot of numbers nailed it and i would like <laughs> to scan his ankle because he's a diabetic, or as my granddaughter says, a diabetetic. <laughs> <laughs> and they're looking for an abscess. Now, I, I made that up on purpose because I'm not using ultrasound. I'm not going to use nukes. I'm not going to use CT. Right. The best test to evaluate, is there an abscess? What's the extent of the abscess? How is it doing? Do I need to go in surgically, or is this drainable? percutaneously, there's nothing to discuss. We, we want an MRI. Mm -hmm. My machine is a three Tesla. My machine is a 1.5 Tesla. Let's say it's labeled to 540 gauss per centimeter. This is at 720 gauss per centimeter. Or if it's labeled to 720, my machine goes to 1,080 or whatever. <laughs> so the labeling means whatever is the label of that, the package insert, right. if I am about to scan that patient, and every single thing I said before, it's 1.5 Tesla, it's less than 720 gauss per centimeter, right. it's less than 15 minutes in length, it's less than two watts per kilogram, it's less than, um, it's normal operating mode, and it's less than 200 millitesla per meter, Tesla per meter per second for the gradients. If I do all that, well, then you're just following the instructions. Right. Another term for product label is instructions for use, in this case, for a device. And you're, uh, that's considered on-label. If you do anything else, if you cross any of those lines, if you're 16 minutes instead of 15 minutes, if instead of normal operating mode, you say, I decided to go into first-level control mode. If you do anything beyond, not less than, but beyond what it describes, the only exception being, being radio frequency labels. There's different energies we use in MRI. There's a static field, there's a radio frequency field, and there's a gradient field. And for the, for the radio frequency field, you can't be more and you can't be less. You have to be on target. But right. for the others, as long as you're less than, you're in great shape. So if you're exactly where you're supposed to be, that's on label. Anything else is off label. So why would you do something off label? 
I don't know, maybe you don't have a 1.5 Tesla, you only have a 3 Tesla scanner or, or something like that. Maybe for the benefit of diagnostics, you need to use some parameters that would exceed the labeled thresholds. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do, before you even discuss why and should you or shouldn't you, before you even go there, the first thing is you're off-label. So the definition of off-label means not I'm going to use an argumentative term on purpose, Mm -hmm. not adhering to the product label. A better way to say it is not following the instructions for use. Correct. In some way, going beyond or outside of the defined labeling, the defined instructions for use. That's considered off-label. Off-label. Well, when they're making, like when they determine their label, per se, are they, is it, Okay, this is what they tested it in, and it's safe for that, so that's our label. It's not like they're testing to see if it's safe at this level or safe at that level or safe at that level. It's like they, they get it approved, and then that's it. That's what it is. So the way it works, it's very insightful, seriously. The way it works is that some company wants to get a product labeled. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an important question, and it's a very <laughs> simple one. And I'm asking the two of you. Okay. I like Why? Couple. Say it again. Why? A company what? wants to get their device or their drug oh, so they labeled. Sell it as MR That's conditional. the only correct answer. Uh, if you have a device or a drug and you want to sell it in the United States, uh, you cannot right. until it has a label. Uh, a label for anything, yes. Yes. but it must have a label. Dang. So in the United States, not having a label, this is then experimental, and it cannot be sold. Not yet. Now it's got all kinds of regulations on top of it. But the second this drug or device, I I keep having to add that, but if I forget to, just plug it in for me. (laughs) The second this drug or device is labeled for anything, it's now legal to be sold in the United States. Does that make sense? Yes. So getting a label is critical. Right. Getting a label is the basis that opens the door in a capitalist society from a for-profit corporation Huge there's nothing market. i find myself having to defend that <laughs> i don't want to defend that i'm not going to defend the united states it's right. who we are we are a capitalist society we're for-profit right. and we try to protect our citizens in in ways that make this a viable the best right. in a sense society we could make it right so there's nothing we don't have to apologize for it being a for-profit society but you should be aware that there are limitations to this capitalist for-profit society. In fact, um, I should give you a two-bit piece of history here. It looks like a, a background. Let's hear in, it. <laughs> in 1906, I believe it was, um, Teddy Roosevelt is um, the president who was over, super superseding. He was the one that Sorry. was actually there during what was referred to as a, the Pure Food and Drugs Act. That was the precursor for the FDA. In 1938, we had a real issue. In, in 1938, there was a legally marketed, let's call it a drug. Back then, they called them elixirs. It killed 107 people and children. Whoa. That was 1938. That, that I should say, that happened before 38, and that resulted in passing in, the, in 1938 the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Now that was critical. The the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 
essentially it revamped the whole public health system. Here we are selling something and 107 people died because of, directly because of this elixir that was legally marketed and sold in the United States. That was, you remember Michael Colombini, the six-year-old in that tragic accident. Yeah. That changed the face of MRI. Right. This event changed the face of the United States. And that's what caused the FFDCA, that act, to be passed. And um, that is essentially, you can trace it back to that one event. That's what gave the FDA the authority to oversee drugs, devices, et cetera. And, and I want to read this to you, if I may. Yeah. Forgive me for looking Perfect. down for a moment. The, um, this act established that drugs and devices that are approved to be marketed in the United States, quote, may be labeled promoted and advertised by the manufacturer only for those uses which the drug's safety and effectiveness for which the drug's safety and effectiveness have been established and which the FDA has approved mm. these are commonly referred to as approved uses unquote does that make sense so now we've formed mm. this concept that you want to sell something in the United States, you're going to make some, listen to the next word, claims. Right. You're going to claim this will cure cancer. This will grow hair on bald people. This will do something. You're going to make a claim about this drug slash device. This act in 1938 is the source for which the FDA has their authority to say you're not going to market, sell, claim anything in the U.S without having essentially an independent, objective, knowledgeable group of people, let's call them the FDA, review your claims, the basis for those claims, and say, that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. You are hereby, listen to the next word, approved to make those claims. And you can sell it and say, this is going to lower your blood pressure. Absolutely. I, I've looked at your data. It certainly seems reasonable. Yes, we agree this does have sound scientific basis for the claims you're making that this will lower your blood pressure if taken in the following way, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that's the basis for everything that we're about to discuss. Right. So the approval is necessary for you to market. Once it's marketed, now I get to use it me being a healthcare practitioner and specifically, admittedly, a physician licensed to practice in that state. The FDA's authority is federal. It's over the entire country. It's national. But the authority to license medical practitioners resides with the states. So you may be licensed in this state, but not in that state. That would mean it is technically and literally not legal for me to act as a physician, whatever that means, and the authority and license granted to me in this state has not been granted in that state if I didn't apply for and was not granted a license there. So it, it is different. The FDA is national, whereas the physician's license is granted state by state. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where is the authority for the Food and Drug Administration coming from? Federal government. Everybody with me? Yep. Cool. Trickle down. So... But there's something that is as critical as can be that I don't think people understand. Um, there was some question before that. It was, it was threatened a few times. It was questioned a few times. In 1997, there was the FDA Modernization Act. The mm -hmm. FDA Modernization I'm falling asleep just listening to myself talk. History yep. numbers, that makes me fall asleep. <laughs> no, I but, but this is really critical. 
There they solidified and crystallized beyond any question of a doubt the following. And this is a direct quote. I'm going to read again. Please pardon me. November 21, 1997, FDA Modernization Act. Nothing in this act shall be construed to limit or interfere with the authority of a healthcare practitioner to prescribe or administer any legally marketed device to a patient for any condition or disease within a legitimate healthcare practitioner patient relationship. English. Yeah, you got to convert that one for me. The FDA has no authority over the practice of medicine. I'm going to say it again because this is the part that people don't understand. That seems they cannot. Some discrepancy there. It's the opposite of discrepancy, and that's what we're going to clarify. That's the reason right. why I thought this was necessary. If you guys are confused, that's fantastic because it means that everybody out there is confused. How long have you been practicing? You're supposed to be interviewing me. I'm interviewing you. How long have you been practicing? <laughs> MR. Table's yeah. turn. Seven. Seven. Huh? How long? I've been I'm pushing nine or ten now. Nine or ten years. Yeah. So we got a decade plus, and right. between the two of you, we're pushing two decades. Right. And this is news to you. Imagine somebody just starting out. Right. And I should tell you, this is news to most physicians as well. Well, because what you're saying is that they, they can't control how you practice your medicine, but in order for us to use something that is off-label, it has to get a label. Or, I mean, in order for us to use an implant that's been created or whatever, uh, it has to, be, uh, has to get a label from the U.S. FDA, and then... Then you, they can't judge you if you use it or not, I think. I guess, I don't know. When you There's two different practice. topics being discussed here. Yeah. One of them is, I would like to use this widget on my next patient. I like that widget. I'd like to take, <laughs> I'd like to take this widget, and I want to use it to, for surgery. This has nothing to do with the FDA now. Right. Manny Canal wants to take this and use it during a surgical procedure on my patient. It has nothing, it, there's no labeling for it. It's not even a medical device. I would like to take, let's get to a more serious and more, oh. a more real example. Right. I would like to use peach pits to cure cancer. I would like to use an ingredient in peach pits available in Mexico, and I want to treat my patients with it. There's cyanide, for example, in right. peach pits. Mm -hmm. I would like to take this peach pit, grind it up, do stuff with it, and I'm going to give it to my patients. There are laws that govern my ability to do something that would be called experimental medicine. Right. We're not talking about the FDA now. We're talking about what I, as a physician, can and cannot do in general. Okay. But that's a different story. Right. So now what does that have to do with the FDA? You, Manny, you just told me. So let's, that's the point we have to clarify. Right. So now that you guys have understood this, let me give you a, a, a let's go back to our clinical case and see what we can, what we can make heads or tails out of this. We have that six foot four guy, he's diabetic. I think he may have a, an abscess in his left ankle. He has mm -hmm. a deep brain stimulator and I want to scan his ankle. Right. I'm not going to take the time now to go through, but I think you guys are certainly able to understand that most of the fields that I would be concerned about, the radio frequency field, the gradient fields, he's six foot four, I chose a large patient. The exposure in his ankle, if I center his ankle, put him in feet first, I could use an extremity coil maybe. Mm -hmm. 
the RF and the gradient exposure is, let me approximate, zero. It's not a safety concern for this guy's deep brain stimulator. In this theoretical example, the static field, let's say, is well within what is permitted by the labeling. It's been shown to be safe. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's off-label. Because the, the label does not allow me to scan with the energies I'm about to use. Or it may not even allow me to use that coil. Right. Now, I'm intentionally misleading you by using words like, it may not allow me. But that's how you think about it. This is exactly and how we think about it. is a mistake. Now, I need to make sure I clarify for you. Mm-hmm. Some things we say are opinions. Some things we say are clarifications. And some things are just fact. So I'd like to make sure you guys understand these aren't opinions. This is fact. Right. The concept of allow me is an error. It needs to be undone in our thinking. Yeah. The FDA has no authority over how I handle my patient care. Not zero. They are not licensed to practice medicine in any of the states. They certainly can't tell me how to practice medicine or any other licensed practitioner. Um, so then what are they doing? And, and, and what, who are they talking to? I mean, it just said there, it said <laughs> 1.5 to, who are they talking Where are they to? Where they info from, right? Yeah. Well, so, let me ask you this. Do you think that there should be like a different governing body that oversees? Medical devices? Yeah. Not at all. Or, I'm extremely happy with the FDA's oversight. I'm extremely happy with their oversight right. over drugs and pharmaceuticals as well as devices. Oh, and their website's got so much better. They have oversight over the pharmaceuticals. They have oversight over the devices. Notice that what they don't have oversight, they don't have oversight over me. And that's a misconception. And that's what I'd, I'd like to explain. All right. So this, I'm, I'm now reading you from the FDA, April 1982 the FDA's publication, volume 12, number one, referred to as the FDA drug bulletin. If you can capture this, let me, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll bring it out for you. So here we are in April 1982, the FDA drug bulletin published by the FDA, of course. And there's a section here entitled Use of Approved Drugs for Unlabeled Indications. And I know you can read, but I'm just going to help you out here. The appropriateness or the legality of prescribing approved drugs for uses not included in their official labeling is sometimes a cause of concern and confusion amongst practitioners. I would refer to this as a duh moment. Under the FDA the Food and Drug and excuse me, the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, a drug approved for marketing may be labeled, promoted, and advertised by the manufacturer only for those uses for which the drug safety and effectiveness have been established and which FDA has approved. These are commonly referred to as approved uses. Remember that. This means that adequate and well-controlled clinical trials have documented these uses and the results of the trials have been reviewed and approved by the FDA. So before we continue, what does approved mean? And in case you want to know, this is an open book test. <laughs> the answer is on the slide. Well, approved for what? What I find interesting is that the manufacturer is going with what the FDA is, which is probably only so they can, I don't know. Exactly. Take a look what's highlighted. Approved, by uh, definition, means only one thing. 
he was marketing. Off, he was looking off my paper. Just <laughs> Cheater, right? <laughs> yeah. But all kidding aside, what does it mean to say something is FDA approved? Guys, this blows people away because they really, really don't understand this. After four years of med school and going through residency and fellowship, people don't understand this. Yeah, it, it means it's been reviewed, tested, and guaranteed to be okay to use. Be careful. There's no such word guarantee. Dang, it right. means they reviewed it. They find the claim defendable and reasonable, and they approve marketing. They allow the pharmaceutical firm, the manufacturer of this device, to sell it mm -hmm. with those specified, here is the word, claims. I claim that if you use my drug or device in the following fashion, this is what should happen. That's what it means. And the FDA, remember they had this elixir that they sold, marketed legally, and 107 people died. Right. That's what they're trying to cure. They're trying to prevent a claim that has no basis. An unscrupulous third party that just wants to, in a for-profit society, I would like to make money. Well, you can't say it's going to cure cancer because everybody and their mother is going to buy it because you don't need me to tell you what it's like when somebody has cancer, God forbid, right. will grasp at any straw to try to save our family member. So the FDA says, you're not gonna claim it cures cancer until I've seen it and I agree with that claim. Any claim you make, I need to see it before I allow you to claim it. The FDA governs, oversees marketing. Not you, not me, marketing. It's their only authority as far as the discussion that we're having today about MRI safety. Right. And when the, you see the word approved, yeah. look at the bottom, what I've added here. For the rest of your life, when you see the word approved, FDA approved, in your mind, add the words for marketing. It is okay for you to market. That's all it means. It means marketing means to claim. It means you are allowed to say that if you use this drug in this way, the expectation is that your blood pressure will go down. And if the FDA has reviewed your data and says that looks well performed, well executed, I agree with those conclusions, yes, you may claim that, is preventing the public from being exposed to unsubstantiated claims. Right. Because now they've been substantiated by an, an independent, no financial gain, an independent party, the FDA. Yes, go ahead. Well, do you have to, outside of, of course, the application fees, is there any other fee that you have to pay to get something approved? Oh, my goodness gracious. There's we'll like get there. fees after fees after fees? We'll get there. <laughs> is that chapter three? We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so now take a look. The FD&C Act does not, however, limit the manner in which a physician may use an approved drug. Once a product has been approved for marketing, a physician may prescribe it for uses or in treatment regimens or patient populations that are not included in approved, what does the word approved mean? Marketing. marketing. Approved for marketing, labeling. Such unapproved or more precisely unlabeled uses may be appropriate and rational in certain circumstances and may in fact reflect approaches to drug therapy that have been extensively reported in medical literature. And that's critical for you to understand. And this is the FDA talking, the term unapproved uses is to some extent misleading. It includes a variety of situations. It can be unapproved, and if you use it in that fashion, you're going to kill this patient. Right. Or if you use it in this fashion, it's the state of the art. That 
is the standard of care is to use it in that fashion even if it's not in the product label. Do you understand that? Yeah. There are many, many reasons why a drug may be used for a certain off-label indication even though there's no labeling for it. Um, an example that was published in JAMA in 1984, for many years, status epilepticus, a disease that's predominantly a, a disease in children, for many years, the drug of choice for treating status epilepticus, which is a seizure that essentially just doesn't stop, it continues to seize and you can't break it. Oh, that could be extremely dangerous, could even yeah. be life-threatening. The drug of choice for that was intravenous Valium. For many years, while the drug of choice, the standard of care, was intravenous Valium, the product label for intravenous Valium said, contraindicated in patients with seizures. Oh. You can't use it in seizure patients because you're thinking the word can't has something to do with your ability to practice medicine. It means they can't make any claim oh. because no data was submitted to the FDA about seizures and therefore they're not approved for marketing, for marketing to claim. Yeah. But then you go to a meeting, and in the meeting they tell you, this is the drug of choice, and all the physicians out there say, this is what we've done, and we've done research, and we've found this is the best drug in the world. The product label hasn't, it may take years for a product label to include that indication, if oh. it ever does. What would, what would make, what would motivate a company, a pharmaceutical firm or a manufacturer of a device, what would motivate them to add a claim to a product label. What do you think? Bills were down? I'm sorry? Like if they were trying to like, you know. Add, add a what to a product label? Yeah, you have a, you have a drug. This drug is approved for, I, use, I love using minoxidil. This drug is a, approved for antihypertensive. After a few years, it was found essentially fortuitously, by accident, mm -hmm. that Minoxidil grows hair. It grows hair on this table. <laughs> Minoxidil, no kidding, really good at growing hair, grows right? hair. Dang. Now this is an antihypertensive and it was labeled as an antihypertensive and it's used as an antihypertensive. But then after a few years they found, now this is no joke, it, it actually literally grows hair. Now you can imagine that that might be... So is that like the main ingredient of Rogaine or something? Well, we'll get to yes. Yeah, so it's not for not. It's not what I'd like to focus on now because I don't want to have anybody thinking well, that I'm. I can maybe a get drug. a good beard finally. So I'm just trying to make an observation here. This is not a for-profit discussion, but but it actually gets me right to the point. So now, with that in mind, what might motivate a company to add another indication? Grows not only is it an antihypertensive, it also can be used to grow hair. Why would they want to put that in the label? Oh, because they can just reach a larger market. Thank sure. you. In other words, it may be a profitable More thing to do. Right. It yeah. may be, so what you're saying is, correctly, it's a business decision. Right. Yeah. You understand it has nothing Dang, yeah. to do with science. Dang. It is 100%. That is completely against everything we've ever learned. Ladies and gentlemen, this is critical for you to understand. What is or is not in a product label is a business decision. If you think otherwise, mm. 
you were trained incorrectly and you have incorrect information that you're making decisions based on. Right. People and are so programmed to think that way, though, so you must just... Like, it's, it goes so far, so much further than that. Stay with me. Okay. People think that this is approved up to 540 gauss per centimeter. What's going to happen at 720 gauss per centimeter is obvious. 540 is safe. What does that tell you about 720? Obviously, it's not safe. Right. That's the whole reason why 540... Everything I just said is incorrect. <laughs> right. Everything I just said is an error. It's approved to 540. Why? You actually already gave the answer to that when we started this discussion minutes and minutes ago. Why is it approved at 540? Because that is the data that the company submitted to the FDA. The FDA reviewed it and said, this is a reasonable conclusion and you are now approved to make that claim wouldn't right. it be in their best interest more marketable if they brought it to its limits why not say 720 right. here's the five dollars i owed you to be my straight man <laughs> <laughs> so now let's go with that right what why if what does the company want they want for a brand new product for a brand new drug or a brand new device what do they want they want approval for right. what anything they can't market it without a label right they need approval. What if it's 720? They may be asking a few questions that it looks good, yeah, but well, I mean, what if they had it on for a little bit longer? They may get sent back by the FDA, says it looks okay, but just to be sure, do some more studies. Delays them eight months, maybe another $3.6 million of another comparative study that they have to execute. This is a logistics issue? <laughs> it's not logistics. You're, you're definitely misunderstanding. First to market, right? This or is a financial issue. Financial. This is anything else means you're not catching the point. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a financial discussion. Whether a company can market a drug is not logistics. It's not science. What they put in there is based on the finances right. of their, their business plan for this drug. If they get delayed eight months, that's how a long does it hurdle. take? How much does it cost to get a drug approved? Now, Ooh, I have yeah. a data, I have numbers that I was quoted, and I'll quote that to you, but then I'll show you in writing a different number. The number that I was quoted from the time that you have an idea, I have this drug I'd like to get approved, till you create the drug, you do all the tests, you submit the data to the FDA, the FDA approves it. Can we name the drug Zone 3? I'm so sorry? Can we name it Zone 3? Can we name the drug Zone 3? Yeah, yeah, like, drug? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure you want to call it a drug. Or is it a downer? As addictive <laughs> as it may be. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, if, if it be addictive, it would be a, a controlled substance, and you don't want it to be controlled. Yeah. You want it out there. <laughs> Ballpark, $100 million. Whoa. Wow. The number I'll show you in a moment, quoting from the AMA, is over a billion dollars. Wow. So somewhere in there is the... I was going to get the 10th Somewhere in there is the truth. So if... Let's say that the company says the data for 540 is really solid. I mean, nobody could question that. If I did 720, it maybe people would like it better, but it may delay me, or I may have to do more studies. Right. I think I'll submit it with 540. Get it approved. It gets better than that. We have a drug, we have a drug. We have a device that um, Medtronic put out a device, a, a deep brain stimulator. It was approved at 0.1 watts per kilogram. Now, as you guys, I'm sure, are aware, <laughs> scanning at 0.1 watts per kilogram is essentially not, not it's, it's not nightmare. possible. It's not clinically feasible. It's right. not practical. You guys sitting right there, 
relaxing, taking it easy, resting, mm -hmm. your basal metabolic rate right now is 0 0.4 watts per kilogram. This is one oh. quarter of your basal metabolic rate. Oh, I'm going to say that next time I work. I'm going to sound so smart. <laughs> For a 70 kilogram person, 0 0.1 watts per kilogram. Is that seven watts? Dang. That's how much energy I can irradiate and have him absorb seven watts. So you understand it's not practical. Right. You're not going to get three slices out of that study. Right. Why would anybody approve it at 0 0.1? So what ends up happening is it's approved at 0 0.1. What happens as soon as it's approved? Oh, that's right. They can now market it, sell it. Always, now they can market. Always, and then, as one of the menu, one of these articles wrote, intrepid researchers. And then some people say, zero point one is just—it's just not practical. I'm going to go off-label, and I'm going to try this at zero point two. See what happens. I have data to suggest that it shouldn't be harmful, and if I see anything, I'll stop immediately. They tried at 0 0.2 or 0 0.3 or 0 0.4. Nothing happened. They write an article in the peer-reviewed literature. Hey, I went to 0 point whatever, even though it was labeled as 0 0.1, and it was fine. Three other people say, that's fascinating. Let me try that. They try it. They write articles. And then I'm making this up from now on. Now it's uh, Manny's made up. It's no longer fact. And now seven people write peer-reviewed articles in the next year and a half, two and a half years. And everybody now uses it. The state of the art, the standard of care, is now approved. That not approved, excuse me. It's now that people are clearly, routinely across the country using it at 0 0.3 watts per kilogram. It's labeled at 0 0.1, but everybody's using it. At, they've seen it's safe. They've got their own data. They're happy with it. Right. At the national societies, the international meetings, they present these papers. People hear those results. They try it at home, and everybody's happy. Not only that, a few years from now, if they wanted to, Medtronic can take all of those data, all of say, those published literature. That's free research. Print it up. That's they don't even have to print it up today. It's just electrons. Yeah. Send yeah. the PDFs to the Food and Drug Administration and say, we would like to change our labeling to 0 0.3. Here is brilliant. the data. And it doesn't even cost them a penny. As you said, it's free research. Dang. If they ever submit it in the first place. Right, right, right. So there's an example of where you may have labeling that it doesn't tell you that at 0 0.1 it's safe, but at 0 0.2 they're going to die. Right. It tells you that, what does it ever mean when it's labeled to 540 gauss per centimeter? What do you know about 720 gauss per centimeter? It's undetermined, right? It's undetermined. Right. The only thing you can say that is 100% scientifically accurate about 720, if it's labeled to f up to 540 gauss per centimeter, off-label means unclaimed well no claims are being made it does not mean that that what most of us think is that we've tested until it was unsafe and we back off to where we <laughs> see it is safe right and i always use the example of i'm going to put you guys on the spot here <laughs> driving <laughs> so let's just say theoretically science says 55 miles an hour all right no one's watching. It's just the three of us. Labeling? I'm in the HOV. HOV Either of you ever go above 55? Never. Never. FBI might be watching. Uh, I'm not afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How much did you go? Did you do, did you do 60? Yes. Did you do 70? Yes. Okay. I'm not even going to go other, further. Did you do 60? What if I ask somebody to say, well, I'll go to 65. I'll go to 75. I'll never go above. And somebody else says, are you kidding? I've done 90. And 
I go with the flow of traffic. You understand? <laughs> I go with the flow of traffic. So do you understand that? What is the right answer to that question? The question is silly. Right. The question is silly. What do you mean the right answer? For you, I'm happy at 72. Right. For him, 70. For this person, 85. For this person, 55. I'm not going above it. If they said 55, I'm not. So I always say, what if you get to a curve in the road? And it says 45. And you've been humming along at 85. Because that's what you feel like. Because it's straight as an arrow and you're out west. You can go for an hour and never move. And you're going in a straight line. And then you see a sign that says curve mm. 45. You're still going to do 85? Now, some people may say yes, but most people will say no. Why? Because we understand Physics. labeling. <laughs> Physics, yeah. We understand labeling that if somebody went out of their way to say, here, I'm dropping, that means something's different. Right, something's about to change, yeah. 55 doesn't mean that you're going to die at 56. It means that someone's done some, some work, and we all know exactly what it means, and that said that 55 doesn't mean you're safe. There's no guarantees. Right. You absolutely can get a flat, Next thing you know, flip, and you died at 55, and you were 55, 100%, and they'll write on your tombstone that it was 55 when you died. But you're still dead. Right. It's not a guarantee. It's that this was a reasonable conclusion. Independent third parties have posted it. That's what we're dealing with here. What is safe? There's no single answer to that question. What we can tell you is what has been shown to be a reasonable claim, period. Are they using like human models for what to determine that? Like, so the FDA, when they label, when they the yeah. FDA doesn't label, the manufacturer labels, right. and they here's the word, negotiate the label, literally with the FDA, oh. the manufacturer and the or the pharmaceutical firm and the FDA negotiate an acceptable label based on the data submitted and based only on the data submitted. The FDA is under no obligation to tell them how they should market their device. They're under no, ob and the company's under no obligation. If they did studies at, at um, 0.3 watts per kilogram, mm -hmm. but they think it's question, they're under no obligation to submit that to the FDA. They choose what they're submitting. Well, when they obtain this info, is it based on like scanning phantoms? So there's different pre marketing that's done, pre market approvals. There's all different formal testing that has to be done based on drugs, based on devices. So there's phase one, phase two, phase three, pre-clinical trials that I'm sure you've heard of. Right. So there's basic lab work. Then there's animal work. Then there's human research, phase one, two, three. Eventually, you might even have it approved, and the FDA may say you're approved on the grounds that there is phase four post market data I still want to see. I may pull back that, that label if I get oh. further data. They may demand phase four after it's approved, but I still want data and I'm gonna check it out. So there's always data done laboratory. There there's still always approved. data done animal. There's always data done, almost always, right. on humans. Mm -hmm. And on the basis of that, the FDA reviews it and says approved or not approved. Approved or not approved for marketing. Mm -hmm. So the only correct answer is if it says it's up to 540, what do you know about 720? The one thing you know for sure is that no claims are being made about 720. Right. That's the critical aspect that we need to get across. But there might be a turn coming up. It might be anything. It might be It anything. might be absolutely unsafe. It may be right. deadly. Right. And it may be 100% fine. 
But since it wasn't tested there, they're not permitted to claim anything beyond. Oh, I see. Right. So right. if you pick up the phone, and I would, I would advise you to do this, whoever is listening into this podcast. If you pick up the phone and you dial your pharmaceutical firm or dial your device manufacturer, get them on the phone and say, listen, your drug or your device is approved in the following mash, uh, fashion. It's at 540. Can I go to 720? And what you're going to hear at the other end of the phone is, well, um, our device is approved up to 1.5 yeah. um, Tesla and up to 540. They have to read what they're legally response, permitted yeah. to claim. Right. Anything else, marketing and sales, it is literally not legal for them to say anything else. But I wait, but I just heard the seven articles I saw about 0.3 watts per kilogram, not 0.1. Is that true? And if you do say that to the sales rep or to the marketing guy, they're going to say to you, Dr. Canal, do I understand that you're asking me for information about 0.3 watts per kilogram and articles that you may have seen, or are there articles like that? And I say, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And they're supposed to say, thank you very much for your question. I do not have the answer to that, and I'm not able to give you an answer to that. I will send this to the medical affairs group in our department, our, in our um, company, right. and someone will get back to you. They then have to record. The question was originated by Dr. Canal, not the marketing or sales guy. He's not trying to get, you could use it at 0.3. That would shut them down. Compile this info. They have to document right. Dr. Canal and such and such date and such and such time initiated the question. I then sent this to medical affairs, not sales, not marketing. Medical affairs, this is for our protection. Right. We don't want an elixir that kills 107 people and children. It's just not what we're interested in. Exactly. Medical Affairs says, Dr. Canal, thank you for your inquiry on such and such date about the following. We are permitted to give you, here is some data that we have from the peer-reviewed literature or even our own research. They would be permitted in such a controlled fashion from medical affairs, physician to physician, to answer your question as best as we can with FDA's blessing and oversight. They can communicate what the societies have been saying, peer-reviewed literature, but it's extremely controlled and regulated so that they're not trying to get away with marketing to you things that the FDA has not approved. I have to be the one to ask for it, et cetera, et cetera. Do you understand? Right. It's all about how you ask So they want us to be practicing state-of-the-art medicine. Everybody does. Our patients do. The government does. Everybody wants us to be practicing state-of-the-art. But listen, and this is the hard part that we're going to have ah. such difficulty shaking out of the trees. Why are you looking in the product label mm. for the standard of care? Why are you looking in the instructions for use as to what the most current medical knowledge is about how to pro appropriately and properly use this drug or device? That's not the place to start and finish your search. You absolutely should start there. Absolutely. Let's see what they claim. But if you have an off-label indication and your patient can benefit from it and there is data to support your doing so, you're not just making this up. Right. It's not that you're allowed. Here's the hard part. You're bound to do so and it's your duty to do so. And listen carefully. If you don't do so, you're legally exposed. Ooh. Because you have to provide 
the standard of care, what a similarly reasonably trained professional would have done in that circumstance. If everybody's doing 0.3 and you're doing 0.1 or you're, or you're canceling the study, right. but everybody else would have done it, if something untoward were to result, as I like to say in my, in my courses, the laws of the United States find us equally liable for acts of commission or omission. Whether we did something we shouldn't have done or didn't do something we should have done, well, we're equally like, liable. Right. I really feel like that's the underlining cause, right? We live in a world where people call or sue because their coffee's too hot. So liability is really the, the number one concern, I think, here, right? Um, and then, so when people scan off-label, they assume that liability, whereas before the liability, they could So have. then the question you bring up is, what is the liability for scanning off-label? Let's go there. Before oh, yeah, I can, if we can, are we able to capture the screen again, or is it? Yeah. Super. This is the, in 2018, this is not 1982, this is 2018, <laughs> is when the cur contents were current as of. I pulled this down a couple of days ago. Where was it? The FDA's website contains the following. FDA's role in regulating medical devices. The FDA regulates the sale of medical device products, including diagnostic tests in the U.S., and monitors the safety of all regulated medical products. The FDA does not have the authority to, remember this is the FDA speaking, regulate a physician's or nurse's practice. The FDA does not tell providers what to do when running their business or what they can or cannot tell their patients. The FDA does not have the authority to make recommendations for individual doctors, clinics, or home care agencies. So you're suggesting that there is no legal beneficial or benefit to staying in compliance with FDA? It's the other way around. If a medical malpractice suit should arise from real or alleged injury by a drug, the plaintiff's lawyer would probably attempt to strengthen his or her case if he or she could point to the lack of recommendation in the manufacturer's literature for the use involved. You, you gave this at 720 gauss per centimeter. This is approved up to 540. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see how he ignored the safe usage? And look what Dr. Canal did. Injustice might result if the defense failed to point out that the FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. The labeling might be given some consideration on how well it reflects proper practice, but it should not be allowed to establish what is proper. Other medical literature or expert testimony can quite validly support the correct use of a drug. The FDA isn't there to teach Manny Canal how to do his job. Turning to the FDA to learn how to care for my patients right. is inappropriate. It is not the intent. They do not issue guidelines on the care of my patients. They're not allowed to practice medicine. They're not allowed to interfere or advise me how I should practice. That's the misunderstanding that's that so rampant yeah. everywhere. Physicians have it, technologists have it, nurses have it. In the old days, the FDA had it. In 1997, it was oh. solidified and crystallized. Nothing in this act shall be construed as to interfere with the practice of medicine from a physician to his patient. It's still really hard for me to wrap my head around. Only because it, it really just, it's almost like I'm swimming against the waves, right? Like, 
it goes against everything that I'm kind of familiar with. Well, you program, yeah, to be in compliance. Like, you know, FDA, Big Brother, you know, they, they want you got to do this because that's what they want you to do, type of thing. Like, it's if just, we can, let's go, let's go to the next, the next slide. Well, let me ask you this, if you don't mind. Sure. Like, who do you think should be the ultimate decision maker on whether or not you go off label? Should it involve there is only physics in the United and, States is different in different countries. In the United States, that's an easy one. There is only one that can make the decision: the physician. Mm. The physician who's licensed to practice is the one who's going to be doing a risk-benefit assessment and will be held liable for that assessment. But and so, you, the physician is the only one that has the authority to say, "I choose to go off-label," and will be held liable for going off-label or going on-label for the decision that they made. Right. Forgive me if this is a stupid question, but when you say physician, are you talking radiologist? Are you talking about uh, physicists? Any physician has a legal obligation to make risk-benefit assessments on their patient and will be held liable for those decisions. In the case of MRI, one would think, how do I practice MRI? What drugs do I or do I not use? Right. The only one who's been trained in that, and the only one that in court is child's play to show, has formal training in the execution of these sequences, in the interpretation, in the safe execution of the study itself, what drugs to use or not use, what are the benefits of the individual contrast agents? Are they the same? Are they different? Do you really right. think a referring physician has ever undergone any training in that? It's child's play for them to defend saying, I ordered it, but I ordered it upper. I ordered endoscopy. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be held responsible when you perforate the patient. Right. I ordered the endoscopy. You're the gastroenterologist. You did the listen to the words medical imaging procedure, and you'll be held responsible for the safe execution of that procedure. Here they did a radiology consultation form, right? Right. MRI with and without. Yep. If you think it's unsafe to give contrast. Why did you permit contrast to be given to your patient? Right. Um, AMA Journal of Ethics, if you can bring that up. This is in 2016. Prescribing off-label, this is to your question, what should a physician disclose? Once a drug is approved by the FDA approved for a specific indication, legally it can be used for any indication. Off-label prescribing is common. It accounts for 10 to 20% of all prescriptions written. Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, once the, and the uh, pharmacist at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, one of the largest um, children's hospitals in the country, told me that 90% of the drugs in the formulary of Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh are not oh, approved hey. for usage in children. Now, why do you think that oh. would be? Because how do you get a drug approved? You submit data to the FDA, they review it, and they say, this looks good, I approve it. Right. Well, the vast majority of the drugs that are out there and the, and the devices that are out there, do you have any idea how much more expensive it is to get studies reviewed on humans in children? Oh, and, right. and there's another category, zero to two. How difficult it is and how expensive it is to try to recruit patients, to try to recruit parents to allow their three-year-old, their <laughs> one-year-old, right. their newborn, in a research study that we're, forget this. Yeah. So it's so hard to get the data. 90% of the drugs in the formulary of Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh are not approved for usage in children. That's funny. That paints the but that means right it's there. approved for marketing. Right. It's got nothing to do with what's medically appropriate. In fact, possibly even the standard of care. I like that. That really paints a picture right there. If you want to market it, you're going to have to get that, uh, that, that labeling. But if you 
You can utilize it all day without it. Off-label is an FDA regulatory term that denotes nothing about clinical risks or benefits. This is the AMA talking. That's pretty definitive. I don't know. That kind of paints a picture for me. Well, now I think what we should do is take a look at some of the attorneys. Your speeding analogy really spoke to me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It really helped paint a picture. This is now attorneys quoting from the legal literature. Yeah. In this article from the Indiana Health Law Review, it is the physician's duty. It doesn't say he's allowed to do so. This is the, the, the lawyers talking. It is the physician's obligation. It's their responsibility. It's their duty to adequately weigh the risks and rewards of a particular course of treatment when prescribing medication. Whether the physician has met this duty depends not only on the warnings provided by the manufacturer, but also the prevailing knowledge in the fields. Just looking at a product label is not sufficient. There may be an awful lot more known than marketing has approved. Another label, this is again from the legal literature, FDA off-label use and informed consent, debunking myths and misconceptions. The FDA never has had authority to regulate the practice of medicine. Physicians may use legally marketed drugs or devices in any way that they believe in their professional judgment will best serve their patients. Unfortunately, terminology problems persist. It is common parlance to say that a drug or device is FDA approved for a given use if that use appears on the label. What that suggests is that it's not approved for something that's not on the label, and nothing could be further from the truth. The marketing claim is approved for what's on the label. Anything not on the label, they are not approved to market it to me for anything that's not on the label. Right. This erroneous concept of unapproved use takes on derogatory connotations if divorced from a regulatory context. They're just regulating what can be marketed, not how I use it on my patients. Yeah. And it would be a derogatory connotation, as would be the case in an informed consent discussions. Thus, it is not possible to draw any conclusions about the safety or effectiveness of a particular use of a drug or medical device from the administrative or legal status of that use as off-label. In many or most cases, the FDA will have made no determination, positive or negative, about any given off-label use. The only certain conclusion is that the FDA considers the product generally safe enough to be on the market for the labeled approved use. So what was approved is to market it as it was labeled. And anything beyond that, the FDA says, I don't know, I haven't seen it. Off-label thus only means silent label. No claims. This is the legal literature. The term denotes nothing about health or risks. Off-label could be deadly. It could be state-of-the-art, standard of care. How could you not have done it or anything in between? It simply means no claim. I would say 99% of what we deal with as far as on and off-label is devices. But give an example of what a drug might be that could 
we would use an MRI that would be off-label? Of course. If somebody's using a drug and they decide to give double dose, if they're using that drug and using it for CT, because it shows up on CT, the patient's in renal failure, let's use a gadolinium-based contrast agent and inject 40 cc's and do CT as our contrast because it's not going to induce renal failure, they say, ah. as opposed to the iodine, they would be concerned about it back then. Right. So that's an off-label usage. It's not approved for usage in CT. Right. It's approved for MRI. It's approved because of relaxivity. That has nothing to do with why you're giving it. It's, you're giving it because of its atomic number for CT to stop an x-ray, to reflect, deflect, or absorb an x-ray is a completely different usage. It's not, listen to the words, approved for marketing for that indication. Right. But it's off-label. Like your minoxidil example, I've actually personally had experience with ferrahim, and I'm not sure if, um, I know they do a lot with angiography, but I'm not sure with like neuroimaging. You just gave the perfect example. In 1991, I actually am the first person to present on humans contrast bolus dynamic MR angio. Oh, nice. It was November 1991. I presented it at the RSNA. How cool is that? You you just (laughs) gave me goosebumps. In (laughs) 14, I believe, years later. 14, I believe, years later. The first gadolinium-based contrast agent was approved for MRNGO. All right. 14 Every years. NGO we did before that was off-label. But it took 14 years of research for them to... No, it's how long it took until they decided it was financially worth getting a label. Right. Remember, you, you're, you're continuing to fall back to, but the science is there. Why don't you get it? It costs millions of dollars. Right. Dozens of millions of dollars to get a label. Got to be a business decision. If you have a label and you want to get something else, you're meeting with the FDA. The, the FDA doesn't charge you millions of dollars. The research that they're going to ask you to show me that you that you can support your claim, millions and millions of dollars. Conceptually, it may or may not be financially sound practice for them to pursue that label. For many years, there is no drug, no gadolinium-based contrast agent was approved at zero to two. Then one drug came out with an FDA label approved in usage zero to two. Next thing you know, everybody's out there trying to get their drugs approved zero to two because once one did, the financial potential problems of mine not having it, people may think they can't use mine or maybe legally, why don't I just use theirs? It's less of a legal risk, they might think. Theirs is approved because they don't understand. Right. So as soon as one got it, now they all submit data to get theirs approved, zero to two. It's a financial decision. It's it's so hard to get that across. This is a for-profit discussion. And the only ones that don't recognize that are the customers, and that's us. Right. We keep looking there for science. It's not where we're supposed to find the most state-of-the-art science about any drug or any device. That's a mistake. And as you saw from the attorney, we have a duty to go beyond that and know the standard of care and what's appropriate, whether that's on-label or off-label, is absolutely inconsequential. As not, it, the label is regulatory, not for us, for a pharmaceutical firm, for a manufacturer, what they can claim. It regulates them. They cannot regulate the practice of medicine. I mean, I knew today's talk was going to be interesting, but dang, I didn't know my mom was going to be blown. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would try to really, I really wanted our physicist to be here tonight. Dang. Oh man, oh, that's crazy. Awesome. Um, 
You know, one thing I do find interesting is just off-label use in general, but we do a lot in our personal experience with mostly devices, like I said before. So it's a lot of times it's the non-conditional pacemakers. Yeah. And, it's like that. But yeah. we're lucky enough to work at a facility that has a physics uh, department. And so we have a physicist that we can use to consult at any given time. Right. And uh, we see him pretty often, so he's a good resource for sure. That was who I was hoping would be here tonight. <laughs> so I know you're watching, Dr. Panda. <laughs> Not that we're going to call you up by name. Yeah, you yeah. call him out. <laughs> so this is what I wanted you to see. As discussed above, the FDA does not prohibit nor regulate a physician from prescribing a drug off-label. The FDA's intended mission is to regulate the pharmaceutical industry without interfering with the practice of medicine. That, you need to publish it in neon lights and place it on top of every MR scanner. <laughs> right. The FDA's intended mission is to regulate the drugs and devices industry without interfering with the practice of medicine. As such, allowing physicians to prescribe drugs for such off-label usage is, quote, an accepted and necessary corollary of the FDA's mission because their mission is to not interfere with the practice of medicine and can be the standard of care in many fields. <laughs> that my, should be printed. My brain and at left this in every point, zone three. <laughs> right, my brain at this point is literally coming out of my ear. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I imagine you just beat your head against a wall sometimes just having oh, to, to get the text reassure people of this. Here's one for you. 90, 95% of drugs used in neonatology are, are used off-label. Well, because like you say, they can't test it on babies. Right. Exactly. It doesn't mean that they're not safe. It means they don't have data that the FDA has had submitted to them and they've reviewed. So how do you know you can, seriously, how do you know that you can use it safely? Well, then you have, that's what you were asking before. Right. So you turn to societies, you turn to the peer-reviewed literature, govern yourself, make sure you know how to practice medicine, and where do you go to learn how to practice medicine? You don't go to a to the physician's desk reference and see what somebody got legal, <laughs> legally allowed to market to me. That's where you start. Well, now you go to societies, you go to other physicians, you go to the peer reviewed, you go to experts. That's how science develops. That's how medical care is practiced. Couldn't the 95 now get like a retro approval with the data that they have? I mean, if the company feels that it is financially sound business plan to submit it and get it approved, yes. If it costs more than they think they will earn, then no. And let's go back to the minoxidil. I'm just I'm making this up. What if more people are prescribing it for hair growth than for antihypertensive? What if everybody's using it already? Why should they bother getting it labeled if it's already being used? Right. Because all it's going to do is cost them more money. It's going to cost them more money, but I feel like it's going to open up a... If people are using it, it doesn't open up anything. And if they're not, then it would open up. So it's a business decision. Right. There's already a whole bunch of competition in the hair growing industry. That's the know. part that people I'm find about hard the money. to understand. I am thinking about the money because I'm thinking if you've got a drug that's FDA approved and you want to sell it to a pediatric hospital. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt for a second. If you've got a drug whose marketing is FDA approved for a single indication, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's way more marketable. So it's now way more competitive. So way more people are going to buy your product. The real truth is that because the contents of this podcast are so misunderstood, you're absolutely right. People go out of their way. They will say to you in their ads, 
now indicated for the use in zero to two, indicated for MR angiography. We've been using it for MR angiography for a decade. But we live in that world. So yeah. I'm people don't, they're not doing it. So it may be cost effective and they may think it's not cost effective. And they may be wrong. It's just humans make it's a business to, all I want you to recognize is it's a business decision. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, because FDA literally said in the last slide that we just showed. Standard of care is to go off-label. The they standard of care to. is to provide the best care for your patients. Best care for the patient. Period. Right. And whether that is or isn't off-label has nothing to do with the standard of care. Right. Nothing. It's a mistake to think that on or off-label defines standard of care. That sentence has to get across in this podcast. Right. It is a mistake to think that whether it is or isn't labeled for a certain indication or whether I am on or off label defines standard of care in any way, in any way ever. It is not the intent. Their job, as we saw in that slide a few slides ago, is to regulate the company's industry. The FDA regulates industry they do not regulate the practice of medicine their job is to regulate industry to prevent unsafe things from being sold in the first place or inappropriate claims right they therefore regulate marketing what they can claim it's my job to go way beyond just a claim and to know how to use a drug or device best for my patients individually Every single one of them. That's my, as you saw the, in the legal publications, that's my legal duty, which means obligation. And if I don't provide my obligation, that's defined as negligence. Not providing the standard of care is a synonym for negligence. Oh, yeah. So that's one thing for I really sure. appreciate about where we work is that we work at a facility that just today they scan an off-label <clears throat> device and. Uh, so they're not looking for reasons not to do it. They're looking about how can we do it. Right. And so a lot of places, I don't know, it seems like if they have it out, they take it. Um, well, it may be that they're taking it perhaps because they misunderstood. They may think that they have to take it. Right. Well, it's nice to work for a place that's educated on that then. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad to see that at least it took the two of you off guard and by surprise because maybe, maybe it'll also be useful for the, for the people <laughs> listening into your podcast. Well, I'm yeah. glad we covered this topic for sure. I think it's got a lot of uh, merit to it for sure. Yeah, it's just, yes, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I can't wait to go do my own due diligence because I'm, I'm definitely going to do some fact checking. <laughs> well, the truth is that you would be tremendously helpful to your physicians in general if you were able to find information and provide it to them. Right. A physician can't be expert in everything in the universe. They're human. It's just not possible. And intelligent physicians obviously would like to surround themselves with the most capable technologists they can who will right, right, have yeah. this knowledge and, and do some of the footwork and, and say, this is what I was able to find out. You make the decision, but at least this is what I was able to find out, how others have used it and where, and here's my references. That would be, oh, it's right. worth its weight in gold. Well, and honestly... Uh, not where I'm working now, but places I've worked in the past. I do find that a lot of radiologists lean on the text to make that decision um, as far as safety goes. Should we, should we not? Like I've had many like, radiologists go, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think that if a, if a radiologist is not expert in that area, 
will be held liable and they turn to a technologist that is more expert and ask for advice and guidance, Never. I think that's exactly how the system should work. Right. That's what we're looking for. Surround yourself with people that have expertise in that area. Guys, I, like I say it all the time. Yeah. You're the ones that say, don't call me a technician. I'm not a technician. I'm a technologist. technologist. The difference between a technician and a technologist, a technician knows what to do. A technologist understands the knowledge behind it. And if you're technologists, it would be in my selfish best interest to ask you for your advice and then make the decision, and I'll be held liable for the decision I make. The best presidents surround themselves with brilliant advisors. They could be, I use Reagan as an example, whatever you thought about him, he was an actor. He was a Hollywood actor. Those were his qualifications. Right. But he had, everybody agrees, he had some tremendous advisors. You could be president of the United States if you have excellent advisors. You certainly can be a better radiologist if you lean on expertise from wherever you can find it. And if you can find it from your own technologist, that's fantastic. And that's right. how the system is designed to work. I do find when I'm in those situations where I'm asked for my opinion, I do caution on the side of error. And I am more likely to say, I don't think we should do this because I've had several patients where uh, GSW, uh, they got a bullet in them somewhere. And I would say, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a lot of radiologists say no to this. I, based on my experience and, and the consultations I've had prior to this particular patient, I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't scan it. And then it turns out we scanned it and it was fine. So I'm like, And we've had patients with gunshot wounds that were scanned that have permanent injury afterwards. So right. this is, now you understand this is the art right. and science of medicine. Right. Because you may be a 57 mile per hour kind of guy. And what's wrong with that? In certain things, you might say, I don't have the data to support it. That's not even a 57. That's a 45 turn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down. That's perfectly fine. That's right. your, there is no right Funny. or wrong unless you're so egregiously aggressive or egregiously, I'm never going to go beyond the product label. Either those two extremes, okay, there perhaps you might say it's too far. There are many facilities that are that way, though. Oh, yes. Well, I think uh, it first starts with questioning this process that we've been talking about with the FDA and how we kind of understand that concept because how do you not question after this, right? Like, you have to kind of think about it like that. Like, okay, well, obviously we can kind of discuss a conversation about doing this now because they're saying that we can't go past 520, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been tested at 700, right? Like, what it sounds like is you're, you're refer referencing the canal method. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> so now we can, we can end using the example we started with because now you understand this six foot four diabetic. Right. It's completely off label. But you have personal knowledge of your own machine. You know where the fields are distributed. You are comfortable that you're not exposing this device to any field or fields, static, time varying gradient, time varying RF. Mm -hmm that will be harmful or technically off-label for what it's already been approved for, right. for labeling, for marketing. You're comfortable that it's so far out that it's not gonna be exposed to harmful levels of any of the three energies. It's off-label. But you do your patient a, a, a service, a benefit, instead of sending them to the OR, you can perhaps answer it with a non-invasive study and maybe allow percutaneous drainage and guide where they need to go and that's exactly what we're looking for. I told you at the beginning, and I'll say it at the end. Nobody wants a Yahoo. Nobody wants a, a, an aggressive cowboy out there saying yes to everything. Right. It's easy to say no. <laughs>
It takes knowledge right, and yeah. understanding and a willingness to apply them to say yes. And not letting marketing limitations limit your practice of medicine and the care of what's best for your patient. That's the well whole said. point we're trying to make all along. Very well said. And what we don't see a lot of times is just the behind the scenes. Like these patients are coming to us with stories and history and experiences and their anxiety. And um, when they're being turned away at other facilities and you, you work at a facility that can think outside the box, um, it's, I, I keep going back to them. I feel like we're really grateful. I'm, I'm really grateful to work at where I do. Right. Um, and to see the look on that patient's face when we're done with the exam and I bring them out of the board and they say, we're done. And I say, we're done. And they, that weight of anxiety releases from them. They know they got a good study. They know that they're going to get whatever answers that they're looking for. It's just, it's a very rewarding, very satisfying feeling as right. a technologist. Especially after they got so many no's before that. I them, love right? seeing them come overcome. Yeah. Uh, they're just claustrophobia, but I love seeing us overcome this these moments of adversity where we're supposed to just uh, somehow make it work right I have a special message to the technologists the um, the message is don't be afraid to think don't be afraid to take the knowledge that you have and share it you know your relationships with your physicians nobody else is going to explain that to you and you know that some of you will have difficulty doing it but many of you will not and you'll be able to say, Dr. Canal, Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, I got to tell you, I'm not comfortable doing this because of the following. Or I just want you to know, you know, you have to make the decision. But I got to tell you that I think we can do this safely because I think this is far enough removed. Or I can make sure that I, dro I can drop the, if you're worried about the heating, I can take care of that. I can right. do single slice if you need me to. I can, right. I can drop the SAR. I can go way down. I can, I can put pauses. I can decrease the duration. If you feel comfortable, don't be afraid to think and don't be afraid to explain and to share what you're, the knowledge that you've worked so hard to get. Right. We had, there are 7,000 people that by now have taken my courses in MR safety. And I've told them the same thing I'm telling you. Wow. I'm not, knowledge and understanding is not my problem. I don't have the slightest concern that you're not going to be able to understand it or know what we're trying to teach. You all got to where you are because you have skills and you have talents. Right. The part that I'm worried about is the willingness to apply it. Knowledge and understanding, but the willingness to apply it is what you got to work on. If you yeah. think you can do it safely, say so. Maybe the radiologist really will appreciate your knowledge and will appreciate it and say, well, tell me more. Why do you think so? And what can you do to reassure me? And do you have any references or is there someone I can call that might be able to back you up? Don't take that as an insult. That's how it works in science. You want somebody to back you up and you love being the one that afterwards, if you suggested it and you did it safely and you got that feeling afterwards, they were about to cancel a study that you were confident you could safely do. That is what makes you a technologist for right. real. Not just what you understand. I don't care what you understand if it stays locked up in there. As far as I'm concerned, you're a technician. If you share it, that's what makes you a technologist. Nice. If I could just say one, I th as a technologist, my personal experience, one, I think, critical aspect, though, and again, I keep plotting the place that I work, but I applaud any place that allows you a, a, a big enough time slot because you said time is money, right? And it's all about money. We live in a capitalistic world, right? But 
at the end of the day, if you're given the enough adequate time to say, hey, I can do the one slice, I can do the 15 minute scan, wait 30 minutes, I can do all these different things. Um, it's nice to have because I worked at places that it's just kind of in and out, in and out, in and out. Right. And if you're going to take more than a 30 minute time slot, then uh, you're not an FDA approved. Sorry. And we move on to the next. So it's nice to work at a place that. Well, the, I, I've heard a saying, an interesting say, s slogan, an, a, de a, Democrat, a liberal is a Democrat that hasn't yet been mugged. Well, um, <laughs> from, that, from that point of view, warped as it may be. There is also the point of view of um, somebody great. who's aggressive, somebody who hasn't yet been sued, oh, somebody who hasn't yet hurt somebody, and I mean hurt oh. somebody because they're after the almighty buck. And uh, if it, listen, if you, I keep saying if if you never hurt anyone, you get away with it. Fantastic, right? Right. And the only time it ever is an issue is if somebody gets hurt, and at that point, the legal system finds a way to make sure someone's there to pay. So right. I agree with you. If you work in a place that's you're very fortunate if you work in a place that says, get me an answer. If it takes an extra 15 minutes, it takes an extra 15 minutes, but I need this answer. I need to know if there's cord compression. That's a perfect example for a cord compression. You're worried about heating up this, yeah. this abandoned lead. You're doing three slices. You're doing a central, five millimeter thick for all I care. You just want to see if there's cord compression, a gradient echo. You just do a, in fact, you could probably get away with doing nothing more than your localizer and you have an answer. So if, you, if you're that tech that get called in at 2 in the morning for cord compression, I've been this tech, <laughs> <laughs> and you say, can your patient go by wheelchair or, or stretcher? Oh, yeah, he's actually just walked to the bathroom right now. He walked to the bathroom and he walked here and he could do all these different things. Um, but I'm running a 35-minute scan in the middle of the night to see if he has cord compression. All right, I'm not here to judge whether or not that person should or shouldn't have been there. Oh, come on, I got a neuroradiologist. The neuroradiologist says he doesn't tell somebody how to practice medicine. Uh, ah, that's a great answer. Steve, we were testing you. Great answer. Well, uh, I'll end on this. I think uh, one way that I explain and I, uh, MRI safety to patients um, is that I, because a lot of times they'll say, well, why is it that I have you know this hip replacement and that's not okay, but or that is okay, but this isn't, you know? And I say, well, when it comes to MRI safety, it's not black and white. It's gray. And it's really gray. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Gray. <laughs> I don't say that. What do you say? Ooh. I tell them that the question is presupposing that it's a simple black and white, but there's an awful lot more there that you have to know and understand, and we won't be able to cover that in the space of a few-minute conversation between us. So just trust me that, like they like to say, don't confuse your Google search Oh, with yeah. my medical degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I thought you were going to Roy G. Bib me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, the, the point yeah. is that it's not that it's great because you guys do understand MR safety and you can learn it. And so many people have said afterwards, I never understood it before, but now I understand so much more. Mm -hmm. You definitely can master this field. And it's a lot more complex oh, and man. involved. And that's all it is. And somebody's saying, but this is not safe and this is. That doesn't make any sense. You're right, it doesn't, because it's a lot more complex than you're thinking. Not right. that it's voodoo magic, it's that it takes a lot more, and that's why I'm a technologist. Right. There's levels to it. That's why eventually I see us all get into an MRSO position. And for the record, I'm not MRSO, but... One of the biggest parts of the job, right there. It's a goal, for sure. you got to have that knowledge. I think it, right. it more than just looks good on a resume, right. to be honest. But it, honestly, it's just great, just uh, advanced... Well, if you were the patient, 
who would you want taking care of you? Right. And honestly, I treat every patient like that way, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have any uh, conferences or any educational things you're doing coming up you want to give a shout out to? We just finished um, a course last week in nice. Orlando. That was oh, really nice. Nice. And it's nice to, to see that Florida. we... It was nice to be in Florida, I have to say. And it was nice to see a turnout that um, I was actually very shocked because actually the majority of hospitals are still still have a no-travel policy. Right. But we still had about 150 show up, and that was amazing to me that that many people would show up in, a, in the middle of right. COVID still being in, on, on top of us. It just goes to show that there's still tremendous interest in, in, in our doing our job better and better. Yeah. We well, we're knowledge. hoping for a good turnout at RSNA. We're going to see you in a couple of weeks, I hear, so... Um, God willing, hope to be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, hopefully we can have dinner one of those nights. I'm looking forward Are you to it. Be there the whole week. I hate to say this, but yes. <laughs> Why do you hate to say it? It's my first year. Do you know something I don't? I'm sure you know a lot that I don't. <laughs> and we're out. <laughs> <laughs> this is my 35th to 40th year. Oh wow! And wow. Um, it's a very it's a busy week. It's busy. Is it? Huh? Yeah, I, Why not? Had layovers in Chicago, so I'm excited actually. You're going to have a blast. It's the greatest radiologic show on earth. Although I think this year will be much, much slower, but right. it is truly a circus. It's, it's huge. Well, I do have some questions from some coworkers and whatnot. And so I do want to ask you those, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Fire away. Katie. Thank you, by the way. Yeah. Big shout out to Katie. You know who you are. <laughs> um, all right. So word for word, it says, so I know that scanning off labels, how implants become FDA approved. I want to understand that process. Who can you take the off-label data to the FDA to get something approved? For example, there is an active implant that is 1.5T, um, head and extremity only scanning permitted per the product labeling, but we have been off-label scanning prostate exams, even in a 3T, <laughs> with low SAR and physicist supervision, et cetera. How many times would this have to be done to take the data to the FDA? Should it be multiple patients, same patient with multiple scans? I think we kind of covered that, right? Well, the answer to the question that we didn't actually answer that question, the, the only one, the only one who can take it to the FDA is the manufacturer or the pharmaceutical firm. Okay. Uh, Industry. The uh, I cannot take it to the. Hey, can we, you approve this? <laughs> we can literally hand them the data, but it's if they don't not want to take yours. it, it's proprietary. FDA? It's owned by this company. They determine its labeling, not you, Manny. They determine the labeling with the FDA. They negotiate the label right. based on the data that they choose to submit. It's for-profit business, right. and they will decide what, what will and will not be labeled. So they'll gather data if they want that indication that this questioner is asking. Mm -hmm. And they may go to their site and say, can I have your data? They may go to other sites. They say, did you publish it? And then they may take that data, turn around, and submit it to the FDA. But the fact that you did it means nothing to the FDA. They want to see pro prospective controls. Show me what you did. Show me what you monitored. Showed you, show me the adverse events. Show me that you were prospectively monitoring for adverse events. How do you know there wasn't an internal thermal injury that you're not aware of? This is it's science. They're not interested that you did it and nobody seemed to die. Right. That's not science. I find this an interesting question, and I think that this would actually, I don't know, be almost like a shield of protection for a lot, but should the patient sign a consent for off-label scans? The um, idea of consent is informed consent is another lecture entirely. It's, it's a completely separate discussion. Informed consent, I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV. Um, informed consent is essentially best determined 
if a reasonable patient would have heard the potential risks, would have said, oh, if that's the case, I'm not doing this, then you should have gotten informed consent for that. If there's a realistic chance that a reasonable patient would have said, wait, you mean I, I could get a burn? And the chance of a burn are one in three million? No way am I going to, if that would be what a reasonable patient would likely say, then a court may find, and why didn't you get informed consent? As the, uh, again, we didn't go to the point of my showing you this exact slides, but informed consent because and only because it's off-label does not seem warranted. So you've been an expert witness in litigation, right? Um, I've been involved in over 350 legal cases yeah, in I'm my so career. I'm surprised that you wouldn't just definitively say absolutely get informed consent because every, you know, every little thing. We don't get informed consent for everything for many reasons. Um, for example, I don't want to scare my patients on the grounds for, please forgive me, protecting me. I actually do care about my patients. And if I think a patient needs a test, and if the only reason I'm telling them about something is so that I'm to. covered, yeah. that's uh, a conflict of interest. Dang. If the patient is going to get scared that. off from a test that I think they really do need, and I think it's in their best interest, and any reasonable person would say, of course I want this. Do you tell every patient that you give penicillin to that there's a one in 100,000 chance that they may get anaphylactic and die? Nope. I don't understand. Yeah. But there's a one in 100,000 chance that they may die. How could you not have told them? Right. Because she has pneumonia and she will die if he doesn't take an antibiotic. Right. This is one of the safest antibiotics there is. There is a chance she could die and there's no way I'm going to get informed consent for a one in 100,000 chance of anaphylaxis. It's not going to happen because I'm going to scare my patient from doing the right thing. And that's the practice of medicine. So luckily I have the rest of society and the medical society with me. Nobody gets informed consent for giving antibiotics, for, for giving penicillin. Now, what if there's an antibiotic where the chances of death is one in 500? Okay, that's a different story entirely. Right. So what a reasonable person considers I would l certainly have said no if I would have, okay, then maybe you should have gotten informed consent, Manny. And something like one in one in 100,000, I don't believe that's what a reasonable person would say. I'm not, in that case, I'm going to stay unprotected and allow this, this pneumonia to run its course and hope it doesn't kill me. Right. Well, I wonder if maybe that answers the next question because we, I do find this in my experience a lot. If a patient cannot, will not remove body jewelry, should they sign a consent for burns? Um, it depends. M many body jewelry I'd like to have off for multiple reasons. Frankly, for most of them, I want it off because of artifact potential. Mm -hmm. Now, there are potentials for thermal injury. There, I will admit that, but I think they're few and far between. Most earrings or something of that nature, it's small, it's, it's completely conductive. There's no reason to suggest that it'll heat up. And I frankly, I'm not worried about the thermal injury concern, concern as much. And plus, you can mitigate that risk by putting a, a heat sink on it and just put a, a saline bag, a cooled saline in a towel on top of it, and it'll absorb any energy that, that you'd be concerned would otherwise be a thermal injury. So the informed consent is there when I think the patient has a realistic chance of getting injured. Uh, I'll tell you where I get informed consent. I tell a patient, um, you need hearing protection for this study because it can cause hearing loss. You, you can actually expect temporary hearing loss. And without hearing protection, it could be permanent hearing loss. So you should have hearing protection. If the patient refuses hearing protection, I want it in writing, informed consent. 
I might choose to cancel the study or I might choose to say, you don't want to protect your own hearing and you need the study. I might be willing to execute the study and you signed a conformed consent that you may have permanent hearing loss. I might proceed with that. I'll see. It depends on what they indicate. If it's for headaches, I'm not doing the study. Hmm. If it's for cord compression, I might. Okay. And F, the F, FDA is the one who says we need to wear hearing protection, right? It's not a matter of need to wear hearing protection. Um, you have The FDA is the one that said that you have to have the hearing, the, the oh, sound level. pressure level decrease below 99 decibels in the A scale. Right. And that's based on OSHA occupational safety and health administration guidelines as to what they've considered, what they've found is harmful and for what duration uh, of exposure. It's not just an absolute level, but also a duration and level that combine to form oh, um, hearing loss. And beyond a certain level, instantaneous hearing loss for explosions and what have you. Right. One thing I do find, cons- I do, I think maybe it does, I don't know. I think maybe it creates a culture where the patient starts to question the necessity of some of these safety precautions we take, that if we say, hey, you have to remove the earring, and they say, I can't take it out, and we say, all right, never mind. Now they say, well, what else would they say never mind about? Maybe I shouldn't mention it. Right. And so I do think that there's multiple consequences. I I don't ask our technologists to say never mind. We say we want them off. CT, MR, I want them off. And what if they can't? Then we'll say you can degrade the examination. Oh, yeah. If you think there's something that's a safety issue, then we would say it may be a safety it issue. Up or, yeah, it's done with the risk. Mm-hmm. If they're wearing electrically conductive clothing, I say that has to come off. Well, no, I don't want it to come off. Then I don't tell them it's an artifact potential. I tell them I'm worried about potential thermal injury, a burn. And to use the English, you don't say thermal injury to a patient. You say, right. we're afraid that you may suffer a burn. Do you understand well, blisters or worse? The answer that I get very often is... They let me wear it last time. Oh yeah, super. I mean, that when we come, we hit that question all the time, all the time right. and so we answer them is, isn't it wonderful that we're living in a society where our knowledge and our ability to decrease and mitigate risks continues to advance? Because now we've learned ways to do it more safer than we used to. Ooh, you're a smooth talker. <laughs> you are a smooth but it, talker. But it is the truth, isn't it? I want you to be right. my wingman, by the way. <laughs> Forget it. You could be mine. <laughs> you know what I, what I tell patients, and not as articulate as you, is I just say, just because you drove 120 miles per hour and got here safely, doesn't mean you should. Always do that. Right? Well, yes, but remember that I'm the one that last time told them to go 120 miles an hour. So I don't want to draw attention to the fact that last time oh, we didn't gown them, and this ball. time we gowned them. Right. We tell them we. I know we've it learned. really puts me in a tough spot, but you, yeah, you. We just tell them we've learned new information, and and therefore we're now doing it, it even more safely. Ooh. Yeah, I know, right? You worded that so well. I'm not. Well, it's really true. That it's it's wonderful that we are able to learn about it and do things more safely than we did in the past. It's right. just people don't think about it because you're trying to defend what you used to do. I'm not here to defend what I used to do. I'm always trying to do the best I can. And the fact that we're doing so, you know, in the old days, I also used to use leeches, but now we use antibiotics, oh, right? right? So it, it's it's just progress. It's it's wonderful. You, I wouldn't say that to a patient. That sounds insulting, but it, I'm saying it to us. We recognize we used to use leeches. Right. Today, we we can we don't have to use a leech. We can do other things to make it even better. And and you know, it's it's progress. Literally, it's all it is. It's progress. My first course was 2014. <laughs> literally and and i am glad to say that i think things have substantially changed in the industry since these were introduced it's oh, just yeah. progress is nothing to be embarrassed of what we used to be like it's the opposite since we think we can do better we teach each other how to improve 
and then we tell our patients, look what we learned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Answer. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we get a lot of these. I, it's, it's a lot of these consent questions. So here's another one: Should a patient a patient sign a consent when undergoing an MRI under anesthesia? The risk of burn is higher for the simple fact that the patient cannot feel a burn or able to communicate with us. Even if we pad the patients everywhere, the following SR or SAR slash B1 RMS levels, the patient could still potentially experience a burn. So under anesthesia, should they sign an additional consent or right. consent acknowledging the fact that an RF burn could happen? By now you know me well enough to know that I never tell anybody else how to practice medicine. I can simply tell you that no, I do not in my institution. I have no Okay, it looks like this one's a case study. Are you ready? I'm here. <laughs> so, you've got an 87-year-old patient with pacemaker scheduled for C-spine, T-spine, and L-spine. It is discovered with prior imaging that the patient clearly has an omniphase penile implant. Or implant penile implant. Um, patient claims to have had implant for 30 years. Patient has been scanned eight times since having the implant, all on a 1.5. Brain, full spine, angio neck have all been scanned. No anesthesia. Um, implant is considered MR unsafe. Patient has not consistently disclosed the implant on screening in the past. Most screenings, patient has omitted it. Seems this patient has been scanned off-label for years now. At what point can this be considered a conditional device? Never. I guess we don't define you it as conditional. You answered that question. You're, you're right. It's never considered conditional, but they meant from a practice point of view, when are you happy yeah. that it's safe? Um, you answered it your, yourself. Having, I like to say, just because I cross the street with my eyes closed doesn't mean it's going to be safe the next time. Right. And um, there may be different circumstances, right? Right. Maybe uh, next time it won't be 5 a.m. Maybe it'll be 5 p.m. and I'll have a different outcome. Right. Maybe the rate at which they move through the fields, the angle in which they're with the fields, the the uh, the, the previous ones were non-shielded and this one is shielded, and therefore it's a, a greater attraction as they go through the shield. There's so many variables that um, this is what this person is asking is a person has had it done without any significant tor untoward event. Does that mean I can rely on it being so in the future? And the answer is a very definitive, objective, mathematically verifiable, of course not. I got a question. And, but it just play devil's advocate because, I'm, I mean, they, this person would argue that mathematically we're eight for eight as far as safe, no safety issues. So mathematically, and the numbers say that it is safe. Eight for eight. Now we'll go back to what we said before. Remember we said that? Can we submit the data somebody asked to the FDA and get something labeled? And we said, no, the company has to submit. And what did I add after that? I said, that's not data. Uh, did you prospectively evaluate that's it? Right. Otherwise, it's a bunch of anecdotes. And listen to the next sentence. A collection of anecdotes and anecdotes does not constitute data. It's still anecdotes, nothing more. You know nothing about how they went through, what speed they went through, what orientation, what field, what were the spatial field gradient distribution. You know nothing, period, about that person other than they entered into a scanner and left, and they're here to talk about it. And so I'll be glad to show them patients that have entered into scanners and walked out, and they have ferromagnetic aneurysm clips. Would you put them in again? Mm, no. I can show you 100%. Oh I'll show gosh. you images scanned on them with massive artifacts. Nothing happened. Not a thing. They asked oh. afterwards, "Is are we done? Chills. It's an anecdote. 
If they go in seven times, Manny, come on, at some point, yeah, at some point you hit the eighth time, right? Right. I see where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Well, all right, with the whole idea. I'm so it, sorry. One last thing. Oh, yeah, go ahead. What do you tell the family on the eighth time, but they went through seven times and nothing happened? Right. And the family sits there and says, you're pointing to the times nothing happened? My concern is not about the times nothing happened. My concern is the time something did happen. And why did you rely on anecdotes as opposed to science in making your decision? I don't know. I, know, right? I don't want to. I feel like if I'm still playing devil's advocate, those eight exams would be the scientific method, right? So that is science. Science is not That's eight. Experiment. Eight, is, eight is not science. It's not because they had different circumstances each time. Oh, yeah. They're not controlled studies. That's true. It's not controlled. There's, ah, you're there's too no smart. Eight I can't studies. argue with a man that's too smart. <laughs> <laughs> no. if, uh, if you dropped pennies on the table, eight of them, and they all came up heads, would you put your life savings at the next time they're going to do it again? If eight times, listen to this. I know it's, it can't happen. It can't happen. I lost a lot of money in roulette because of this. Same if, I put, if I dropped it eight times, if I dropped eight pennies and they were all heads and I dropped it again and all eight were heads a second time, would you put your life savings on the third time? Do you know what the chances are of it happening twice? That's why it's called statistics because the chance isn't zero. Man. It's just Statistics, right? Right. That's what you're gambling with is my patient. Is that you, the luck of the draw? Ooh. What if every time you cross the street, it ended up being nighttime and hardly anybody was on the road? And the next time it's daytime and it's rush hour. Dang. Ah, you should have been a lawyer, man. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Oh, man, no, that I hurts. Mean, in a very complimentary way. You got, uh, you no, got well, your I, power of persuasion. I think that question brings up a good concept or at least a good um, – I don't know, a good question for me to ask about unsafe claims. So if we're with this whole new idea of FDA and, you know, big brother marketing, like we'll let you in the market. Uh, why would anyone ever submit? Like, how do things become MRI unsafe? Right. Wow. That's it. You've opened a, a complete new bag of worms here. This is not a joke. We, okay. I don't even think you understand what you just entered into. MR unsafe means that... Um, the company has today, the FDA claims that with one exception we're about to get to, that's the bag of worms. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to submit a claim, they said to me, nowadays of MR unsafe unless it has been shown to be unsafe. I just don't want to do any research. It's too expensive. Let's just label it as MR unsafe. That interferes with patient care because people look at that and they start to think that that's telling me how to practice. And All I right. see MR unsafe. That's a, listen to the words, claim you're claiming this has been shown to be unsafe and in the past there's a lot of mr unsafe that was simply i don't want to test it i will be satisfied with a label of unsafe do you understand so the fda people at the fda have fed back to me that nowadays they will no longer permit that that if you're saying it's mr unsafe they will want to see data to support unsafe not just that you're in a sense, right. don't wish to spend the money to prove that, yes, it is actually going to be attracted or heat or what have you, except for orthopedic devices. Oh. And for reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast, for the foreseeable future, orthopedic devices apparently will still be allowed to claim MR unsafe 
even without formal testing showing that it is unsafe. Now, there is some reason to support that. Imagine, for example, for now, imagine some orthopedic devices. How do you use them? Well, it's, it's woodworking with humans. It's human right. working, right? And it's Tinker Toys. And you're going to screw this to that, this to that, and to this. So what configuration would you like me to test? How are you going to test every possible configuration? How are you going to be able to predict what it's going to look like in that patient? That's Did you ever point. do any two X fix, any two external fixators that were identical? They can't be. Mm-mm. Everybody's different in the size, the dimensions. and Right. And if this one didn't heat, does that mean that one won't heat? After all, we've had eight of them that we've done. It's a, it's a study by now, isn't it? Eight different <laughs> X-fixes. They all had the label X-fix. They're all, nobody died. Right. So, of course, the next one will be safe, too. Conceptually, devices that are meant to be implanted with other devices in orientations that just can't be predicted necessarily, they do present a problem. So, with that potential exception about safety... Um, supposedly my understanding, I could be wrong, but the understanding that in a discussion with an FDA employee at the time is that nowadays we will not, with the exception of orthopedic devices, perhaps we will no longer accept new devices claiming unsafe without data to support the claim that it is indeed unsafe. I just don't understand why why a company would want to do that. They don't want to, but they have no choice. If it's unsafe, they don't want to get hurt anybody. Uh, and they don't want somebody to be hurt by their device. It's not good for the patient, of course. It's also not good for them. It's not good for anyone to injure anyone. Yeah. So it's in everyone's best interest, if it is indeed overtly unsafe, to be absolutely certain that you tell people this is unsafe, even if you think it may be. There are many devices that we don't know for sure that it's unsafe or that it will always be unsafe. Right. But if it may be, Better safe than sorry is their approach, and there is some logic behind that. Right. That makes sense, because it's still bad marketing if something happens, right? Yeah. It's bad for everyone if a patient gets injured. Right. Even for their bottom line, for not just for the patient, but for everyone. It's Every- bad business right. to injure anyone, and nobody wants to do so, obviously. Right. Right. Max? Great question. <laughs> but do you feel like there's anything we haven't covered yet before we wrap up this episode? Um, that's up. Speaking to you. of rap, you don't know this. You're, I'm trying to get him to do a rap, but <laughs> that's up to you. I can't. I can't really tell you what it is that you want to cover. But no. But seriously, as far as as far as this topic is concerned, I just wanted to make sure that people understood the role or lack thereof of the FDA in my obligation to do what's best for my patient. It's a good right. takeaway. For sure, it's a good takeaway. Well, we'll wrap it up. Reggie, do you have anything you think of? Yeah, of course. Big shout out to Aegis, our sponsor. You know, they always take care of us. So definitely want to show those guys some love. And then Dave, last day, this last recording with us, man. And Dave, get in front of this camera real quick. Man, it's, see your face. it's been, I don't even know, 20 plus episodes with this guy. I don't know what we're going to do without him. Since day Come one, on out, Dave has been with us. He's our producer. He is our Jamie, for those of you that watch Joe Rogan. Yo. And we're losing our Jamie. Ah, oh. So thank you, Dave, yeah. for all that you've done so far. Appreciate you. Man, we're going to miss you. We truly appreciate you. Um, and we appreciate you. Yes. So thank you. My yes. pleasure. Wow. Thank yeah, you Dr. for bringing Kanata me out. Dr. It's my pleasure. Thank you for bringing me out to 86-degree weather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we're going to try to get you to fly your own plane out to us. Yeah, shotgun. <laughs> if you want, we got a date. <laughs> nice. So, Zone 3 Podcast. We're out. Thank you. Good.
The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.